Welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. This is Secret Agent Men, a podcast where we talk about Bond, Bourne, and Mission Impossible. Episode 4, it's the Bourne Supremacy. Matt is happy. He was scared it was going to be bad, like the first one is only okay. It's good though. My name's Matt Waters. I'm joined by Ben Phillips, who is giddy at the prospect of pissing me off by saying Mission Impossible is better than this film. I think... See, uh, I think I think it's one of those things where I think Mission Impossible has kind of very well, whereas I feel like this movie hasn't. This one hasn't aged well. No, I mean I think it's aged well. It's aged better than the first one, but I do think it kind of feels very much like a proto movie in some ways. Here's my take. Okay. I think you like Mission Impossible Fallout so much that you are like just fully leaning in the favour of Mission Impossible where possible. I mean, right, but Mission Impossible 2 is a travesty. Obviously, but <laughs> there's no arguing that. But yeah, I think you are you are giving a half point or something to the Mission Impossibles because to me this is like a full star better than Mission Impossible One. But okay, that's, I mean that's fair. I'm I'm not going to disagree. I think it might be that this is my first time watching it. This is obviously mm. a franchise I've had hyped at me over the time by yeah. people. It's also like, old. And I went to drinks with a friend last night and said that I was watching them, and then he was like, "Wait, you're watching them like not all in a row?" And I was like, "Like, I mean, the movies had like years between them." But he was like, "No, no, no, you need to watch them like the first three in like a block." And they yeah. like work really well together. Yeah. And it's like well, that sounds like a TV show. Then no, it's just it's rare for film sequels to play off each other as much as these do, and it's it's far more pronounced between two and three. Let's try and keep you spoiler free for another two episodes. Oh, I mean, but, but that's the thing is this this movie feels like because it's it's weird because it feels like a complete story, but it also feels like they're not done, and it's the and it's this kind of weird thing where it feels like it needs another thing to kind of like make the two precursing movies kind of make sense. And, and yet they had no intention of making a third. I mean, I'm sure someone at Universal did, but writer, director, star, key producer had no intention of making another one after this. So while it ends on a bit of a cliffhangery more to come type note, but it, but it doesn't though because it's just like here's your real name, this is where you came from. Go do yeah. that information what you will, and it's like Which, the but... the villains are are done with really. Like there's no other villains. I mean the the the, the what is it? Gretkov is the one who kind of goes like, oh, he really had nothing to do <laughs> in this movie. But the that's Ru- for... the Russian billionaire. Yes, <laughs> he's a billionaire, is he? I, I think they say he's a billionaire. I don't know. He's like a he's like an oil bat. He's like a stand-in for. Ibrahimovic and and whoever else from Russia who's stinking rich. Anyway, so released July 2004. What's this? Like two years after the first one? Yeah, two years after the first one, four years after Mission Impossible 2. Because we wanted to flip between franchises. But again, there's no real reaction to Mission Impossible. I think there's more of a reaction to Bond, which isn't happening right now like has Die Another Day already happened in two? yeah Die, Die Another Day happens the same year as Born Identity and it feels okay. like this movie has kind of gone because when we said last week there are good fight scenes in Born Identity but there are also moments 
moments of kind of silliness. Yeah. And this movie has none of that. This like, one there I is... feel sets out to be like, hey, we're real. You can buy everything that this dude uses in a in a shop if you know where to look. This is all dear legit ass spy stuff. And that's what they hang the hat on entirely. Like Bond has obviously got this legacy of being a little bit tongue in cheek. It's a cultural icon. Mission Impossible, very clearly, right? Even the first one is quite campy. The second one is ridiculous. And I feel that's the way the three go. Where Bond has an interesting thing to do, you know, we'll talk about that in a couple of episodes, where it's kind of trying to reinvent its identity, because it has steered gradually more and more ridiculous. Like, Goldeneye was real serious after the, like, 18 ones, and then the Brosnan ones get <laughs> progressively more ridiculous until we get the invisible car and the diamond face and the different ethnicity and all that shit. Yeah, and then the series kind of takes time off. It yeah. casts someone who aesthetically and physically is very different to every Bond previously. Everyone beforehand is kind of brunette, kind of suave. Yeah. And then they find Daniel Craig, who is a bit more rough and tumble. <laughs> Just a piece of meat. Like, But he's coming off a of layer cake. This one has firmly established what the tone of Bourne is. It's like, we're going hyper-real. We're going for a guy that just looks like anyone. Like, he's obviously in shape, but he he doesn't, like, walk along and you're like, well, that dude's, like, a secret agent or whatever. Except everyone looks at him and says, that guy's a secret agent in this movie. Ah, uh, well, part of that is he's a white dude in India, but... <laughs> I mean, this is true, but even in Russia, they're just like, hey, it's that one there. Ah, but... Kirill's really good. Anyway, <laughs> directed by Paul Greengrass, who had a background at this point predominantly in television. He did the movie Bloody Sunday, that's what got him the gig. They wanted to get someone outside of the genre, they didn't want to have a Michael Bay come in and do explosions, they didn't want someone who'd made this kind of thing before. He, his career is strange because like... Was he was a journalist, wasn't he? I think so, yeah. But it's, it's quite a gig to get, and then to go on to get to make things like Captain Phillips and, and Green Zone and whatever else but i mean u 1993 is probably the biggie yeah in critical circles really bigger than captain phillips i mean but they're both really good okay i think i think captain phillips legacy is the, is the fact that tom hanks didn't win a um mm. oscar for it or get nominated for an oscar for it and about once a fortnight i say i'm the captain now to someone <laughs> at work <laughs> written again by tony gilroy who gets a solo writing credit but asterisk which i will address in a minute it is an hour and 48 minutes long so it's 10 minutes shorter and it feels it like it feels a much tighter affair it's bordering on a nice short movie almost but i mean it is a nice short movie yeah because i mean you say those credits out you're looking at close to an well nah, it's an hour and 40 but still um, 75 million dollar budget so they got 15 million extra this time around and it grows 289 million so 70 ish more so cost more made more but not a staggering amount i think ultimatum did a lot better than the than the other the first two but like it's surprising to see this one didn't massively move the needle compared to the first but i mean the I first think, I didn't think do badly i think it's one of those things where like this feels like a word of mouth movie because it feels like by the time ultimatum came out people were talking about these movies as if they were like yeah. this great thing and so i'm sure it's like well, dvd came out yeah. it was on tv it did repeats and stuff like that so the first movie does a solid amount the second one the yeah. first one was a solid enough thriller people went to see it and stuff like that but then it's this is such a step up over yeah, identity. Yeah, definitely. And like, this is the one where everyone's like, this is the one, and like, best car chase since whenever, and I, I don't think it is, but people were talking about this one, and then the third one was like a huge event movie where they really promoted the shit out of it, and it felt important. So, they claim they had no plans to make a sequel when they made Identity, but of course they did, because it's a huge hit. Well, not a huge hit, it was a hit. And they were keying in on, Bourne basically says, if you come after me again, I will f come and find you and kill you. 
And they wanted to focus in on that of like, what if they didn't leave him alone? What if he was coming after them? And uh, so this led to an even greater departure from the novels, which they wanted to capitalize on this post 9-11 surveillance culture thing. You know, we talked about this a little bit with identity of like, you know, 9-11 has happened. The Patriot Act is in effect. There is paranoia about what the CIA, the NSA, all these agencies are doing and this leans real hard into it and it will continue but it's this sort of like fear of these intelligence agencies and the shadowy stuff that they're getting up to and everyone watching you and monitoring you all the time and you see it of like how terrifying it is at times how they can find him and stuff and it's ironic that it departed so far from the novel because this is Gilroy actually read this one The Born Supremacy <laughs> but then he kept almost none of the plot so they just start using the uh, so, so he annihilationed it yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, Brian Helgeland. Helgeland? Either way. He performed an uncredited rewrite because Tony Gilroy had a scene set in the USS fucking R, which dissolved over a decade before this movie is set. And he also... <laughs> Tony Gilroy wanted Marie to die in an accident at the beginning of the movie and to have Bourne flip out and just assault people at rat Like, it was going to be a bus crash or something, so he was going to beat the driver up, get chucked in prison, have to stage an escape from prison in India. And it's like, what the fuck were you thinking? So he did this rewrite. The studio rejected it, but then they took elements of it and allegedly Greengrass looked at both scripts while he was shooting so this feels like one of the biggest secret uncredited writer type things that we're going to cover. The thing is it's one of those things where like there is a whole process for it where you have to present it to the WGA they'll do both scripts and they'll see and so they must have decided that there wasn't enough of the script in there to kind of do it even though that sounds like some pretty big structural changes apparently like as soon as he breaks out the movie's pretty much the same but it's like that sounds like a lot of time and so universal as i mentioned last time they were shopping the sequel around without even thinking about bringing about doug lyman who they hate uh and then gilroy suggested poor greengrass because of bloody sunday i mean did didn't wasn't there also the thing that apparently matt damon hated making the first movie and wasn't interested in coming back either i don't think he hated it like he he like defended it and was like it's a bit overblown how much people are saying it's difficult because all movies are kind of difficult but yeah i mean i don't think he was jazzed to do franchises i mean he he was doing oceans 12 about the same time which is obviously way more of a like a dude bro hangout movie yeah. rather than this which is kind of him on his own yeah but you don't get the idea that matt damon saw himself being like a guy that's in movies with loads of sequels and so i think he in his head would like to think he takes on interesting projects and wants to do something different every time but i'm so green grass brought with him he wanted to make sure all the stunts were practical that everything was achievable without special effects all this stuff and the ending was filmed so the scene where he finds out his real name at the end in new york they filmed that two weeks before release with matt damon's support because it was originally just going to end with the big confession scene and test audiences were like well this is a bummer (laughs) like (laughs) he just walks off after that so they were like we want something a little bit more like fun and open so they did this reshoot it cost them 200 grand and he had to leave filming oceans 12 which i haven't seen oceans 12 in a while but if there's a large section where you just notice matt damon is missing probably because of this it doesn't feel like it would take this feels like a kind of weekend of a shoot really it doesn't feel like this would have taken much time it's about five minutes he's in like one location walking along street which doesn't even look like they've like shut it off 
No. Isn't that hard to do in New York? Well, maybe he had to, I don't know, they filmed some of Ocean's 12 I mean, overseas, I assume, but... <laughs> yeah, I assume most of the 200 grand is like, Joan Allen, short notice, can you come in? Yeah. <laughs> right, Matt, we're going to fly you in. Right, we need to hire a film crew. And they're yeah. doing this all at like short notice, so probably inflate yeah. the cost. So our agent is, again, Jason Bourne. This is what I remember him doing, is this kind of... It's interesting, because, like, the personality is broadly the same. Like, he is somewhat quiet and reserved. He never really smiles. But he's just doing cooler stuff now. We've still got the fluency in German and Russian. Like, he's still fighting. He's doing better fighting now. But now he's doing, you know, he's he's bugging things. He's tricking people. He's giving people the slip. Like, he's just a very clever man. And this is what I remember of Jason Bourne. And, uh, yeah, he still doesn't love killing people. Like, he is, he's pretty cut up when he when he kills that dude in the house. But, you know, that, that's, that's the character. It's like, he's this... I think Gilroy, like, likened him to, like, the samurai's journey. And there's this, like, romantic idea of this like warrior who doesn't want to fight but like he's too good at it and has too many enemies to not so our mission this time around basically is it even a mission not really like when i say mission i'm saying here's the convoluted plot of each of these goddamn movies but like a russian billionaire is trying to cover his tracks so they set up this elaborate frame job where Bourne is framed to have stolen money and files that incriminate someone in the cia and as part of it they also kill marie so that he like they head towards each other i don't know if he was supposed to kill them both. i guess he was supposed to kill both of them but yeah it's this whole thing where he's he's like why did you come after me and they're like you did this thing and he's like no i didn't and we go round and round and things are learned I mean, I mean, the thing I said to you last night was like this whole movie would make would be so much shorter if they just sat down and had a conversation with each other. Well, you are describing a lot of movies. <laughs> I know I'm describing a lot of movies, but this one of the most impressive things about these movie, this movie, is how slight it is. Mm. Where like, yes, there is a convoluted plot in the background, but yeah. it very much is just kind of like this guy is in the wrong place at the wrong time, doesn't want to be there, and it's actually kind of like a fun tension of having Jason Bourne kind of very completely not want to be involved in anything. Yeah, he just wants to be left alone, but they just keep coming for him and he has to hit back because, well, let's get into it, it's two years later, he and Marie are living in India and he is having recurring dreams, but they're trying to live this quiet life, but that all comes to an abrupt end when Rush, a Russian secret service agent comes and murders, he tries to murder them both, but he only succeeds in murdering Marie. So... He shoves her in a fridge, it's really weird. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it does suck that she is fridged, but it is nice they brought her back first and, like, the very very brief moments they have together like they continue to have a nice relationship and she is a I guess unconventional casting for this kind of role for the time for her to be like this tattooed kind of like hippie roaming chick like I don't know it's nice to see a diversity of actress for these kinds of roles even if it you know ultimately she does get killed off in five minutes it was nice to see her back for me anyway I mean it's, it's, well, I guess it's that question which is like would you rather it be they just have a line at the beginning of the movie where it's like oh she ran off with a surfer guy <laughs> and now I'm out here like, like that the yeah. kind of flippant thing that like a Mission Impossible or whatever would do where mm. why why is he not with yeah. Naya after Mission Impossible 2 and it's like oh the yeah. actress didn't want to come back. It's nice to have the continuity. <laughs> 
Well, the thing is, like, I can't imagine... This will be fascinating to me when I finally see Jason Bourne. I don't know what his life looks like when no one is actively coming for... Like, he's obviously wary at all times someone might be coming for him. But, you know, he's not doing a mission. What is his life? Because, no spoilers for 2 and 3, but, like, we don't get that question answered in 3. Uh, he lives in a nice beach house in this movie. I think... Yeah, like, with Marie, is what I'm yeah, saying. Like, I, I can't think... imagine him by himself. So the implication is, is that he's not very well. It's like, there's this moment where they go, like, oh, he, would, he wouldn't have a sensitivity to light. And I was like, is that something that we're supposed to understand? Yeah, do you not remember um, Clive Owen was like, you get the headaches, I get really bad headaches when I'm driving at night and stuff. I remember that. And there's that whole remember... thing where he's driving at night and he gets the headaches. Yeah, but I don't remember the bit where like, they're talking about sensitivity to light. I assume that yeah. was a reference to the fact that he blew out the lights, that Kirill both blew out the lights at the the kind of like the CIA sting operation. Uh... And they're just like, oh, did he do that? And it's like, well, no, he no, didn't. I don't think it's so. dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that's meant to be it, no. But yeah, you know, he's, he's having his dreams, he's got his little notebook of clippings and anything he can remember, and I'm sure if you freeze-frame some stuff, you can have a nice read of that, but... So Carl Urban rocks up as Kirill, and Jason spots him immediately, because they're both white people in Goa. But I, also... I, do, I, do li- I do like how they go back and go, like, the car is wrong, the clothes yeah. wearing are wrong. Yeah. He's very aware. And it's, it's a nice moment where, like, they do explain why he kind of, like, is prickled by this guy. Yeah. But, like, you just as a regular person is kind of going, like, oh, I wonder, why is he suddenly... He does seem to just magnetically whip his head around at the exact right moments. And Carol yeah. does it back, to be fair. And I do actually quite like that dynamic there, where they're sort of evenly matched. And they never really get close to each other. Like, there's no fist fight. They are never really in the same room. The closest they get is in rival cars that are, like, smashed together. But that's quite an interesting, like, dynamic. Like, that's never really happened in, like, a Bond movie or anything like that, where they've set up this, like, nemesis and they never really have a proper interaction. So he's coming off of Lord of the Rings, I assume, at this point. I guess, yeah. He continues to not be able to do accents very well. He's good... When he's speaking Russian, it sounds fine. But when he is doing a Russian person speaking English, it's not a good accent. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, he is... Is he Australian or is he New, he's he's New Zealand? Zealand? He's yeah. from New Zealand. Like, his and accent in The Boys is really bad. And it's like, could you not have just let him be from New Zealand? It makes no difference at all. He's either way a foreigner in America inexplicably. Like, who cares if he's English or fucking... Yeah. I don't know, but... yeah. So, so in this year, he's got Chronicles of Riddick as well. Oh shit, yeah, he was the main villain of that, wasn't he? Yeah, and then the year after, he's got Doom. And then it's a couple of years until he does Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> I think we both generally like Carl Urban. Oh, Carl Urban's great, yeah. yeah and I, I, I think I, he's good here. Like, he's being asked to basic... I mean, he's being asked to speak a bunch of Russian, which I think he does a commendable job at, but he's mostly mute, and no one ever gives any backstory on him. But he manages to deliver a... To me, it's a memorable character. Like, I mean, this is your first time seeing it, so it's quite hard to test that for you. I, but... I think he's a very impressive physical presence in this yeah. movie, and you can see why he gets the roles that he does in future movies and stuff like that. I can see you being a casting agent and kind of going like, who the fuck is this guy? And, like, you look at some of the roles he gets later, because obviously he's the lead character in Doom. He gets dread after this. Fuck yeah, he gets dread. And, like, obviously he gets to do things like The Boys, where... And I do think it is this kind of thing where it, it, a legacy of... Th- there is a physicality to this role that makes it so magnetic. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing that you wish they'd done in the first movie, with yeah. it just being kind of like one person falling around throughout the entire thing. And yeah. they kind of... And, and you, you hinted at it last time, but Clive Owen really should have been a more omnipresent threat 
rather than having three of them kind of jumping around between the three of them all the rest of it. Clive Owen will continue to have an impact on the franchise, I will say that. I would love to see something with Kirill. I have no fucking clue what this Treadstone TV show is going to end up being, and he's obviously not even in Treadstone, but in a world where there are more of these and he survived the movie or there was more time, I don't know, but this Kirill character is certainly interesting, but probably the beauty in it is that it's a one and done. So yeah, there's, there's immediately more like frenetic pace as they're doing this big car chase like we've got some shaky cam going on and there will be a great deal of it throughout the way she dies is so sad like in the middle of trying to give him this like he's like i have no choice and she's like you do have a choice and then she just dies and then like just having to let her go adrift in the water like frantically trying to pull her out of the car and like trying to breathe life into her but like She's ultimately, ultimately settling for making out with her before she dies. Well, whatever. that is what he does. What he does. It starts off as trying to breathe life into her, and then becomes I'm going to make out with you. Well, look, <laughs> when you're cradling the corpse of your two girlfriend of two years, yeah, sometimes you just want to make out underwater. People kiss people goodbye when they're dying or dead already. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> I think it's really nicely shot, like the green and like her, like her hair really showing up in the light and everything, and just having to like watch her drift there and then he like goes on to watch them haul the car out and he has to burn her pictures and he uncovers his secret stash of passports and i'm gonna call kirill out now for being a bit shit for not making for not going not going to check the wreckage Uh, well you know like, I know he looks at the bridge and goes like, ah, oh, there's no one coming up from the water. And, like, apparently Bourne has, like, an unlimited supply of oxygen because, like, he breathes out about four times in that scene. Yeah, he does. Well, he goes up for that quick bit of it, doesn't he? Interspliced with some of this, we do see that Kirill first stole... The CIA are doing a deal, $3 million for the Nesky files, and he basically busts in in the middle of the deal, kills the people, takes everything, and frames Bourne for it by planting a fingerprint. And Pamela Landy, who is a CIA, one of many, apparently, CIA deputy directors. I don't know how many deputy directors there are wandering around the CIA, but we've got multiple of them. So she, it was her deal. So when this print comes up, she gets flashed with this warning of, hey, you need clearance to access files about Treadstone. And she goes and gets it. And she begins investigating Bourne, much to the chagrin of a returning Ward Abbott, whose name is being said for the first fucking time. (laughs) So it's all a bit convoluted and not entirely clear what anyone is doing up until she actually gets that clearance. And, you know, we had a complaint the first time where it's a little bit like, why is anything happening? happening right now and i think i can overlook it more this time because the movie happening around it is more confident and and better shot and everything but it is a very like who's doing what who's the bad guy why is he doing this why is this happening it, it kind of just comes across as like bad russian men are doing bad things and the cia are shady and it's like maybe that's all you were going for but i really like the landy character because she's almost like a neutral antagonist where she is set up on the other side from jason but like we kind of get this con- you know we know that abbott is bad and she doesn't appear to be so it's like she is a interesting i think wrinkle in the cast of characters where we've got these people that are very clearly dodgy as fuck the russians abbott etc and then we've got jason and then she's somewhere in the middle i mean do do you think abbott is played as bad up until that point because he kind of feels like Mm. he doesn't want like i think the movie plays its hand quite close to his chest for like the first hour where it's like he doesn't want to be here landy is someone who's just trying to do her job and he's grabbing abbott because he's the only person because like the 
the whole thing with the first movie is is that Abbott doesn't know shit about what's going on with Treadstone, really. Well, they kind of retcon that a little bit. They, yeah, they like, do, and that's that's the thing is they retcon it a little bit because they also kind of seem like they're trying to straighten out the plot of the first one. Like we're hearing Conklin's name for the first time, Abbott's name, and they kind of do this when he when she is interrogating him, he's basically explaining. <laughs> some stuff that was kind of in the dark in the first one but i don't know he gives us some sass though like she asks if he can meet her for lunch he's like, oh i'll just check my schedule and then he just looks at his watch and looks pissed off and then like he only goes in because she sent people to collect him and there is this like element of bickering among them that i thought was present with abba and conklin but isn't really but this is very much a thing going forward where we have conflicting interests within the cia and like I don't know, I mean, I guess Albert isn't outright played like a villain, but he's definitely a bit of a prick to her, and there is this sort of undercurrent of <laughs> law enforcement, sexism, institutionalised stuff going on. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, it, but it, the movie plays it to the chest until Danny Zorn gets killed by Abbott. Like, that's well, what, yeah, that's, I mean, stabbing someone is... <laughs> yeah, that's when the movie kind of goes like, this guy's the bad guy, and it does play like a twist. Yeah, they don't, like, say this is the bad guy up until then, but they, I think you are definitely pretty supposed to dislike him more than Landy. Yes, because um, he's kind of the bureaucratic guy who just yeah. wants to push this under the table, who doesn't give a shit about yeah. anything else. And he's like, oh, this, Whereas, doesn't, this doesn't scan, you know, oh, this isesn't conclusive, like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, whereas Landy is kind of competent, and the main issue with her is that she's got the unfortunate role that a lot of kind of, on prestige TV, if your main character's a guy and he's got a wife the wife will play the character who kind of is trying to get in the way of people having fun uh, <laughs> she's got that similar role here where like her role is to kind of get in the way of Jason Bourne which makes you more predisposed to like not be a fan of her even I though... guess but I think the fact that we know that it's a frame job and that she's not really doing anything to it's not like she is unfairly persecuting him like the evidence is pointing to him and as she finds out about him like his file doesn't read like this is a nice man and we will find out he has done a lot more than have second thoughts about killing an exiled african warlord like the stuff with nesky is dark shit and i i guess because hindsight and knowing where it all ends up and everything and that like she ends up knowing he's innocent i guess i'm not as bothered by her but yeah, yeah. you're kind of no right. I, I i think it's just one of those things where the way the movie's played it kind of she is i mean she is the tertiary antagonist for it yeah but... yeah, yeah yeah i originally had her written down in villain watch and i was like is she a villain and then i don't know I, I think it's just it's just that thing where like she is an antagonist if not an out and out villain because i mean the, the movie's so murky where yeah, i mean yeah. we are following a not nice guy in jason bourne <laughs> who apparently like all i know so far is he has a thing for children don't say it like that <laughs> no sure but like the end of the, the end of the, the first movie he didn't go through the the the, the killing because there were children in the room yeah. his big regret in this one isn't necessarily because he killed the two people it's because the two people had a child who's had to grow up without their parents that, yeah. he, that he murdered thinking um, that they murdered each other <laughs> yeah i don't know whether or not there's more of that in the third one and we're going to delve more uh, into that but i don't think so but i couldn't swear by it he obviously has a conscience yeah but it feels like it feels like a conscience has only come through because he had got shot in the back which as we discussed last week doesn't necessarily mean a head injury <laughs> well i'm no doctor <laughs> they also like explain what the fuck's going on with these nesky files like someone allegedly in the cia stole 20 embezzled 20 million dollars 
was and a Russian politician called Nesky was going to name names and then he's suddenly mysteriously murdered by his wife and Pam quite rightly is like hmm maybe it was Conklin and Bourne and uh, she's spot on but hey so Bourne gets himself arrested in Naples in order to gain intel on who was after him and why which leads him to Germany and Landy and Abbott also get sent over and they interview Nicky Parsons who is back him sitting there with a thousand yard stare in Naples after like you know he does something that immediately flags as suspicious in that he goes up to a desk with a passport and it's like well he wouldn't do that and it's because he's trying to get caught and just him sitting there completely unresponsive as this guy like waves a hand in front of his face and then getting the call and learning who he's in the room with and then he just fucks him up immediately yeah Matt Damon who I don't like we've not actually spoken about him kind of like in depth at this point but he is really good he is great in that moment like like I think he's playing because in the last movie he's a little bit kind of annoyed because he can't remember stuff and I'm not sure he's quite as good at playing that and I do think he's very good at playing this kind of rattled PTSD driven guy in this movie who's a little bit more haunted because he knows stuff and I think that he's a little bit less of a blank blank slate than he is in Mm. the first movie it is a really interesting one because it's like the character in a lot of ways is a blank slate but he is putting a level of acting into it that like you kind of get a pass on being so vanilla almost where like like Ethan and Bond are far are infinitely more charismatic presences and as actors as well but like he's just giving it this solid level of like it's fine we'll we'll go with it um, I'd actually be intrigued to count how many lines Matt Damon has in these movies. Because, like, he doesn't do a lot of talking. Most of the no. talking he does is when he's kind of pushed into a corner, will get on the phone and kind of talk to people like, in the CIA. He's back by himself is the other thing, where in the first one we gave him someone to who would monologue at him and he could bounce back off. And in this one we are back to he's exclusively talking to the people who are after him, pretty much, and yeah. doing his stuff. Did you find how long a cut is in this movie? I did. I did, we'll get to that. It's shorter though. (laughs) Yeah, and then like cloning his phone and stealing the car and changing the license plate. It's all great stuff. And like him sitting there listening in on them and surveilling them back is the meat of all of this, I think. And this is what I was shocked to see wasn't really there in the first one. But him being on to them as they talk candidly about him and like him, oh, he killed two people last week. And he's like, motherfucker, what? (laughs) (laughs) And it's very interesting that later on when he doesn't really, he is like, I did this last week and it's like raising this question of like it's sounding like you are considering the idea that you did do it but you don't remember when you know for a fact you didn't do it but yeah and we get the the driving and like i said like the it's a very clear callback to clive owen's thing about driving at night and we get these repeated things of like he was clearly in germany and he had something to do with nesky um, but we won't find out for a bit. But so I think the scene where he like gets into the car and like mm. puts the um the new license plate on and stuff like that yeah. that th- that is where the cutting in this movie works really well. Yes. And then every single flashback in this movie looks awful and is kind of a little bit headache-inducing. I think that's the point. I know it's the point, but it's still <laughs> still kind of like on the wrong side of being kind of like disconcerting. Did Chris Cooper come back? I don't know. He's not credited, but that sure does sound like him. It sure does sound like him, and it sure does look like new. For 
footage of Chris Cooper, but it's also shot in such a way where it's like, I c- do you see your mouth moving? You Have could you, like, be, CGI'd him? Yeah, you could conceivably be hiding a lookalike or something like that and using some unused lines from the first one or something. I don't know. I like that he still has that one picture of him and Marie. That's heartbreaking. And when Nikki gets to come back, like, they're interviewing her and, like, she's obviously very, like, leave me alone. But then when they're talking about him, she gets to, like, mythologize him a little bit where it's like, it's not a mistake. He would never make a mistake. Everything is with purpose. And then Landy is like, but all their orders always came from us. So who's giving them now? And she's like, the scary version? He is. And it's like, it's born as, like, a otherworldly figure is another thing that will happen going forward, especially when we have literally a movie about him that he's not in. I do like that for her. She doesn't have a ton of scenes, but she is one of the returning cast. So he tracks down Jada, who is the only surviving Treadstone agent, who is very clearly supposed to have been Mannheim, the one that killed Conklin last time, but this dude is better, so I'm not mad at them. It's just that weird thing where they're like, oh, we're activating all the agents, and then... And then there's one more out there somewhere, apparently. (laughs) I mean, there's also an entire TV show based on Treadstone, which neither of us have seen. Before, uh, I don't know. Is that out? Is it coming? Is it the kind of thing All ten episodes of the first season have aired. Oh, Jesus Christ. I've not heard anyone talk about it. Pick TV! Interestingly. There's so much TV that no one knows anything. Indeed. So he learns Treadstone was shut down, Jada has already contacted the CIA, so they have to fight to the death, and Bourne obviously wins. I love the fridge gun. I love that Bourne found the fridge gun and emptied it. I love that he has him tie his hands himself in front of him so he can see them. And I love that Jada was one step ahead, and even when he was doing his security thing, he was secretly calling into the CIA, and he's like, oh, sorry, dude, I thought you were here to kill me. But then he does try and kill him the second he gets the opportunity. And they have this really, really good fight, and I was shocked to still hear the comical, like, over-the-top punching sound effects, but it is... This is what the Castell fight should have been. The fucking magazine hitting him with it and then using it to blow his apartment up afterwards. Like, I guess I noticed the shaky cam way more more now we've been talking about it because it is like at times almost nausea reducing but like it's the kind of thing where I've seen this dozens of times and it never really bothered me but once you start talking about it critically it's like oh yeah they sure are shaking that camera aren't they? Yeah I I also think it's interesting though because and we'll get into it more as the, as that is the kind of section for this part of the series. But <laughs> it's obviously been a massive influence over cinema. But it's also, you always know what's going on where. Like, you're never yeah. lost, which I think is the key difference between how this movie uses it or how and how something like Transformers would end up using, like the shaky <laughs> cam footage and stuff like that. Yeah. Where there is still a sense of geography to the scenes. And there's still a sense of, like, even though they're cutting away and they're kind of getting that benefit of, like, they're not showing you how hard the punches are and they can yeah. kind of get a lower age rating because of it, yeah. you can still tell the fight's quite quite brutal. I mean, he's hitting him with a magazine, Benjamin, uh, and they end up like trying to garrote each other, and, and Jason does it, and it kind of reminded me of the opening for No Country for Old Men, but it's obviously not as good, uh, as you sort of don't see who he's strangling, you just see him, and he's looking quite... I mean, he's looking traumatised, whereas Anton Chigurh is like, it's an O-face, basically. Yeah. He is very, like, traumatised by it afterwards and everything, and I love it's, him, like, blowing the house up with a toaster and a magazine, and a so it's stuff. so it's interesting that I mean maybe maybe my like sense of kind of like priorities of the series are wrong, but it feels like this scene and the scene with Castell in in Identity are kind of held up as being like a high point for this series in terms of action. Yeah, and there is definitely one a lot like it in the third one. <laughs> yeah, but like these aren't like they were good, yeah. but. 
I definitely was more attracted to that kind of big blowout car chase at the end of the movie. Oh, that's the thing that everyone talked about from this one as well. But I remember this more for him, like, shoving that magazine in the toaster and letting it blow the house up more than I remember the fight. And the fight, you know, it's visceral and everything, but, like, there's not really a, like, standout moment in the way that a lot of fight scenes have that. Like, the raid is built on that. Like, oh, remember when he did that thing and that thing and that thing? There's not really that here. It's just... I mean, I I heard another podcast describe John Wick in a Mm. way where, like, every single fight scene in John Wick, or all three John Wick movies, is like a three-act structure. Where, like, there is a build and a build and a build and then a payoff. And you kind of get... And you don't really get that here, where the fight scene... But also, it's so much less interested in the action, where it's more about moments of frenetic tension, kind of him running away from a place, as opposed to him fighting for his life. Because you assume he'll be fine, but it's just sort of like, how will he get out of this one? I mean, what, we're, we're two movies in, and there's been, like, five action scenes so far? I guess. <laughs> like, like what, there's the two in the first movie, or yeah. maybe three, there's, like, three in the first movie, I guess there's three here. Yeah. Or even two here. Yeah. I mean, most of the action scenes have been car chases. Well, we've opened with a car chase in this one. We had the car chase in the first one, the Castell fight, and uh, I guess if you want to call the Professor shootout, and then him storming the CIA at the end, so I guess that's four, but... Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, it, it, it does feel quite, like, action is not what the series is kind of angling for. No, and I think that's why they went and got a dude who doesn't shoot action so so he heads to berlin and he finds where landy is staying he tails her he forces this meeting with nikki after he recognizes her and he learns that abbott ran treadstone demands to know about this job he knows he did in berlin because he's got these flashbacks but nikki swears he was never active in berlin him watching her through the sniper scope and then phoning her is again for me like so memorable for this franchise and like I've just been editing the first Born Identity so this is fresh in my mind you asked about like if the series starts to inject a bit of a sense of humour and I don't I think it is always played dead straight but like moments like this I think are kind of funny in their own way I will agree like because it happens twice to her which yeah. is that like she he <laughs> says something and she has the realisation oh shit he's staring at me right now. what if I can't find her shouldn't be difficult she's standing right next to you and then they yeah. all turn to the window and it's like yeah fuck yeah <laughs> and I I like that like in the middle of this phone call she's like you killed two people in berlin and he's really shaken by it because it's becoming clearer and clearer he did kill two people in berlin just not when they're saying he did so yeah. he sounds guilty as fuck in this phone call because he's not like no i didn't I really like the bickering between Landy and Abbott here when they like go into the private room and then even that is shaky cam as they're just talking to each other. And then her, like, it's interesting, like, she is like, I don't want to kill Jason Bourne, I want to know what's going on. And Abbott very clearly has his agenda of tidy this up, let's kill Bourne, let's have snipers. And they're asking these questions of like, are we talking about protecting Nikki or killing Bourne? Or but I love Nikki going, isn't is it, does she protect Nikki? No, she says it sounds like we're going to kill Bourne, yeah. And then after this little bickering session where you know he continues to subtly undermine her she is like all right we'll have snipers and it's like mm. him giving them the slip like using the trams and the protest and and getting nikki into like a bathroom or whatever where there's or somewhere underground where they can't quite hear him and everything i'm being very mean to her yeah, I wasn't a fan of that. Like, you know, dragging around saying, I will kill you if you... Because, I mean, he knows who she is, but she does work for the people that, to him, have been trying to destroy his life and everything. So, like, I can understand why he doesn't trust her, but also, he is going very far with this. And he has to know that they're listening as he's like, yeah, I, I mean, will kill that's, you. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Is like, he's he's saying things for their benefit yeah. as well. And, and they're aware he's saying things for their benefit. But also, yeah. I'm slightly weird out in that I have seen Jason Bourne. I know where the relationship <laughs> progresses. I'm kind 
kind of sat there going like, there's only one more movie for them to develop that relationship mm. to the point where like to the point where it is the thing that I recognize in Jason Bourne. She'll be back. I like that they realize what he's doing with the tram and the protest, but they can't stop it. Like it's too this is a recurring thing as well where like they're not completely dumb. They do twig what he's doing, but it's like but it's too late. The execution has happened. He's planned this out perfectly. He's paying attention to who's who because that, that, yeah. that's the cool thing is like he knows when one of their agents gets into the tram, yep. runs over to her, pulls her off the tram and then gets her to a, a different locations and stuff like that yeah and then abbott does his villain turn and murders danny after he tells him this doesn't quite add up if you're good enough to get in here you probably are good enough to set two bombs that work so yeah he stabs him and just leaves him at the bottom of these stairs and makes you, no ca- real if... attempt to cover this up in any way uh, if you're counting that's two cut returning cast members dead now r.i.p danny this is true there's some tiny little subplot going on where he's like ratting to abbott over trusting landy or whatever because he used to be conklin's assistant so i guess he's more in line to trust abbott and doesn't really go anywhere other than the dude gets stabbed by Abbott. I guess that's supposed to be really shocking, but to me Abbott always smacked a villain, but again, I've seen these things dozens of times, so maybe... I mean, I do, I do like that he's smart enough to go, like, they put two bombs. Why would Bourne put two bombs if like, one, would one, of them is, one of them is pointless, and also it doesn't go off, because if the bomb went off, there wouldn't be a fingerprint. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, show me again, and then as soon as he leans up, he gets stabbed. So Bourne tracks down the hotel where Ness and his wife died he stays in a room opposite and then he well he he, he, he books he, he, the room he books the room doesn't go inside it breaks into the room where yeah. it happened realizes and then, and, everything that happened on you know he killed Nesky on Conklin's order he killed the wife because he wasn't expecting her to be there but he made it look like a murder suicide he didn't make it look that much like one if you ask me but he did he put the gun in her hand he sure did i'm sure the angles on a pathology report would report she couldn't have killed herself but anyway <laughs> i have to ask is this his kind of first unofficial mission then? Yeah, or... I guess this was a... Uh, maybe Treadstone wasn't official. Because yeah, Nikki doesn't definitely... know about it and it's not in the file. But maybe it's not in the file because it has to do with helping cover up a fucking CIA embezzlement. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Because it comes down to the idea that, it's like, well, is Treadstone always being corrupt then if the first mission or a significant mission is that Abbott trusted Conklin to cover up this thing that he did of embezzlement? I don't know if Conklin knew. If he slipped Conklin some money, I don't know. Because the, Pam does say, like, you know, oh, he had all this... He was sitting on, like, almost a million dollars of private funds. And the end, the Russian duty is like, oh, you got your share and everything. You know, you got very rich off this, so... I I, I, it, it makes it interesting in that it makes Treadstone feel a bit more villainous than it was. Because it, it, we haven't really had it defined whether or not Treadstone was a for good or a for kind of personal gain type thing. Wow. And I guess, like, we're now two movies in, it kind of feels like this feels more personal than anything. Abbott frames it as very, like, we threw him all the money he needed and didn't ask what he was using it on, but then it's also like, you know, it's a black ops thing, we took down bad people, but illegally. Potential. Well, no potentially about it. So we get another chase scene, more wobbly cameras. I like that he is, like, actually hurting from it. Like, he does that jump off the bridge onto the barge or whatever, and he fucks his leg up a bit, and then he is actually limping from then on until the end of the film. I like that there is that kind of sense of damage of, like, he's not invincible. He's not going to take a million gunshots and punches. Like, he is a real person. And again, it's it's just very, like, he sees the train coming, he goes past it. Like, he gets off his train at the last second, he goes past another train, jumps off the bridge, and then hooks himself back up onto the bridge. And there's nothing, like, overly 
fancy about it, he's just notices things very well, I guess is his superpower. Which Ethan Hunt also has, so I guess Ethan is... He can do the backflip kicks, so... <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. Um, and I like that Abbott is shocked that Bourne let Nikki go. Through all of this, you can assume that he is tiring him unfairly, but like he does seem to actually not understand who Bourne is. Or who Bourne has become. Exactly. And I think that is the entire message we have throughout this franchise, is, is who he is now and and nature versus nurture or whatever so Bourne breaks into abbott's hotel and he captures a recording of abbott talking to gretkoff over the phone where they basically you know he's even like this isn't a secure line and abbott just carries on regardless <laughs> he stole the money gave it to gretkoff he bought oil fields he got rich he gave him his money back and then some and yeah then they've been trying to cover it up and he also gets him to confess more stuff and and then he doesn't kill him because it's not what marie would have wanted i really like him placing the recorder like on his face and then leaving him the gun yeah he, he yeah he put he, does he put the gun against his neck or does it is it implied he put the recorder against his neck and made him think it was a gun i think that one yes <laughs> yeah but then he leaves the gun and i mean it's obvious where this next scene goes because yeah. i i think is- i think brian cox really crushes this like it's kind of a hammy thing of like you know confess all of your crimes out loud but i think he plays it pretty well to be honest with both the phone call and the scene with jason and then the scene with landy where he's like i'm a patriot damn it and all this stuff and what was danny and he's like unlucky (laughs) and then he fucking shoots himself in the head there are surely easier ways to get secretly rich and better ways to cover it up than like framing jason bourne but this was his plan i guess i mean i guess his assumption was that Bourne would be killed by Kirill or whatever or Bourne would just kind of stay hidden like Bourne wouldn't get involved but really, if, if they Kirill succeeds him. in killing Bourne and then at some point someone finds Bourne and timelines this it's like well did he go from Berlin to India and <laughs> I don't know I don't know but goodbye Ward Abbott you were fun for a little bit he's more fun in this movie he is and that's why again I remembered him like yeah like Brian, Brian Cox gets to actually do some stuff in this movie i mean is this is this the same year or the year after x2 after or maybe x2 is 2000 x2 is 2003 2003 there you go year after yes he is a wonderful william striker has none of the religion but you know he's there now everyone knows that Bourne is still alive gretkov demands kirill finish the job and both the cia and the russians track Bourne to moscow because he is searching for nesky's daughter and after a lengthy chase on foot and in cars Bourne walks away and Kirill does not. Um, I really like this scene of Kirill just in the nightclub, potentially off his fucking face, I don't know, or just like the grim realities of what's about to happen hitting him and then reluctantly going out. And like, it's dim and it's music blaring and then he goes out the fire exit and it's like the morning or something yeah <laughs> it's just... like it's, it's, it's he's been in there all night wherever it is but it also helped by the fact that the movie's been set at night for the last kind of 30 40 minutes or so like it's all been night scenes you just kind of assume it's still night time when he goes outside and no it's yeah not bright skies because it's russia yeah but... <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah, and like this terse conversation with Gretkoff, he's like, you promised me a month off, and he's like, you pr- you said Jason Bourne was dead, and it's like, ah, well, he's got you there, hasn't he? It's and, just and a really like nice little, little character moment, this little half scene. <laughs> yeah, I like this little reveal that he's he's actually a police officer or whatever. 
Because <laughs> he gets in the car with the light. Because until also... now, we've just assumed he's like a contract killer or something. And it's like, no, no, no. He is Secret Service. He can listen to all the radio scanners and he's got the fucking blue flashing light and he's legit. I also like this kind of... I mean, I, I guess you could argue it's a lot of contrivances, but the fact that Bourne inadvertently goes to the one place in the world where people have easy access to wanting to kill him mm. just because he's got this sense of conscience to go apologise to this girl. And it's like, Kirill, what was he going to do? Where was he going to go? I guess he was going to go to Germany. And it's like, oh, he's here. And he's been ID'd by taxi drivers who are pissed off they didn't get his fare. And, you know, he shoots him and Bourne is already limping and he's now bleeding and he has to, like, self-medicate with, like, the vodka. And that. Does he grab a pack of socks or something? Yeah, he grabs he grabs something. I mean, it, it's a great scene where Kirill, like, catches up with him, just abandons the car in the middle of the road, gets out and just shoots him in, like, the shoulder. And then the Russian police are just like, what the fuck is this guy who just got out of his car and started shooting at a random pedestrian? And then he gets away from that as well, because he is, in fact, Secret Service. Um, We're allowed to do whatever the fuck they want in Russia, apparently. Well, apparently. It's a lawless hellhole. Please don't hack us, Russians. Maybe I'll edit this all out. They've we, heard. They've heard. I think they may have heard about it. Again, we get Jason Bourne has a photographic memory. He, like, glances at a map, and then he perfectly navigates Moscow, which is actually Berlin, but shh. What? Are you saying that they didn't get permission to film in Russia? They filmed some of it in Russia, but, yeah, the Mos- a lot of the Moscow scenes are Berlin. Yeah. And then, you know, like you, I'm not a huge car chase guy, but this is a pretty good one. I think I think what I really like about it is the fact that it just the car just increasingly gets fucked up. Like there's a visual signifier to the entire car chase and stuff like that, where yeah. he's driving well and he's able to keep this car going, but also every few seconds oncoming traffic will fuck him up. <laughs> yeah. Like they're not doing that thing where like he's got a handbrake turn and they're dodging oncoming traffic, or he's just using the oncoming traffic to like fuck up cars. He's getting hit by them as well because yeah. that's how roads work. And again, I like that it's not a sports car. Like it feels like a very conscious choice, like the mini in the first one this time he's in a taxi and like at the beginning of the movie he was in this like weird little rickety jeep type thing in india and it's a weird one again because there's no like grand clever thing he does he just sort of he and kirill end up like pinned together and he's the one that shoots the tires first and then he just fucking slams him into the divider thing and what a way to i mean he doesn't I mean, maybe he dies, but, like, he certainly approaches him and then is just like, nah, I think you're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just like, walks like, off. You, you could conceivably see a movie where he came back in the future, yeah. but I think the subtext is he died. Yeah, I, I would assume so. And, uh, yeah, Bourne just limps off, and he does end up finding Nesky's daughter, and we get this... I think this is quite... I don't want to call it bold, because it's not, like, the most daring thing anyone's ever done, but to, like have this character who we are encouraged to feel all this sympathy for to have originally scripted this movie to end with him going to her and he is not seeking forgiveness in any way but he feels the need to tell her she has lived this lie for so long that oh my mother killed my father and then herself how lovely for me and then he's like i'm going to almost do you the give you the gift of taking that back and oh i killed your parents by the way i'm sorry i I, does he say sorry i don't think he does but he's just like i don't think he's looking for forgiveness as much as he's like it is the right thing to do to not make this person continue to walk around with this yeah heavy shit on them yeah it plays as this kind of like weird version of a confession where he leaves she doesn't really say much to him as he goes 
goes, it's just kind of this. It's, it's, it would have been a bold ending, and yeah, it arguably yeah. would have been a better ending. Yeah, I probably. understand why they want to end with the, not with the bow, but with the kind of more optimistic kind of... Yeah, I mean, the, you know, you have this heavy, heavy scene, and he just walks away from it, and it's like, oh shit, and then we cut to basically a joke. Uh, well, we get a reveal. Yeah, she tells him his real name is David Webb, and she tells him his birthday, and then he does the, you look tired, and she looks around to the window again, which is, you know, they're played as jokes, and then we get the Moby song again, and him just disappearing into a crowd in New York, and it's like, it injects levity back in, and I, I think it would have been a really good ending to just be like, yeah, this is what I did. Bye. Which, you know, I'm belittling it, but that would have been quite powerful, I think. And I think that is an interesting element to monitor going on, in that, like, he has done some really bad shit, and we will continue to learn about some bad shit he has done. And just because he doesn't remember it doesn't mean he gets that free pass, but he has very clearly, like, lived differently post-amnesia, so that he has become this, like, heroic force almost, and, like, yeah, I think it's bold to criticise your protagonist... And a lot of movies don't do that, and Bond famously never does that, really. There are hints of it here and there, but, like, for the most part, it's like he's just off boozing and fighting and sleeping with ladies and murdering, and, oh, well, waka waka, see you next time. And I, I do think it is interesting that Bourne does dare to, like, take shots at the protagonist in a way. It's not, like, some deep drama thing. It is still, like, a kind of silly thriller, but I like that about it. I, I, I think it just shows... it. It's kind of very much a piece of the time that it was made, whereas I feel like enough time passes by the time we get the next Mission Impossible or the next Bond that it doesn't need to be kind of quite so dour. Yeah. as this movie is and even and even you can see at the end of this movie where I feel like if it, either if it was made kind of like 10-15 years later they probably would have been able to end with the kind of more dour note or maybe if it was made like a year or two earlier they would have been able to kind of have that mm. more cynical ending Yeah. but we are kind of the three years post 9-11 not that people are trying to get out of it but like it, it feels like the kind of initial kind of grief morning wave is yeah. but I do feel they are explicitly going after the like frustrations people had with with the real world like you know the secret services and stuff but then yeah like trying to end on a not completely grim note and back to just like hey he's watching her and he's gone and we'll see what happens with him in new york in the next movie a massive step up from the Warner. Like, it, 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 like it's a huge. I mean, I think I only had like a half star difference between them in on Letterboxd, but it, it is a bigger jump up than that kind of implies. There is a level of confidence. There is a level of kind of yeah. visual clarity. A level of just, just everything kind of feels like it's 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 better. I have a suspicion when we get back to Bourne with Ultimatum, we are both going to be lower on that than this, but higher than non-identity. I remember it just being, like, a big event thing of, like, this is Bourne, and, like, they up the scale of the stunts and stuff, but it's not as good in the in the drama bit but we'll, we'll see when we get there but before that we do have to close this movie out as we revisit villain watch from ben and matt's marvelous journey carl urban a charismatic motherfucker barely speaking most of his dialogue is in russian and yet he is still delivering this like pretty good performance is he the best villain we've had so far? And I know it's a low fucking bar, but... <laughs> I mean, I think I think pretty handily. He's the yeah. most... I mean, it, it's weird, because he kind of is playing more the heavy role that you get from these kind of movies, like, the second villain you get. But he's also... Jaws. <laughs> Etc. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah, but kind of like the, the Iron Man 3 role with James Badge Dale. He's yeah. kind of filling in that role, except there's no final climactic fight scene with Abbott or with, with yeah. Gretkov. Oh, so who gets arrested just by the by? Um. Yeah, I mean, like, Grekov is nothing. Yeah. 
Like literally nothing in this yeah. movie. I don't think it's e- even. But I worse. think if you'd gotten more Kirill, you might have gotten more him, and then we could have explored that a little bit more. Because I do like that he is like on his leash almost, and it's like it's very interesting that this guy that is a Secret Service agent, a government employee, is in the pocket of this private billionaire, and it's like, what's going on here? Let's explore yeah. that maybe. But okay. yeah, I think I think Urban and Cox are both great. Yeah, um, I think I think they're the best villains we've had so far. But I also think it it's weird because the movie kind of feels. It, with the villains it feels the most slight because there is no the driving conflict is trying to figure out what's wrong with Bourne there isn't a kind of central villain plot in the same way that your Bond or yeah. your Mission Impossible have so it's kind of played in the background where the, the I mean arguably the, the villain quote unquote who gets the most development is Lanny who ends up on the same side as Bourne in a lot of ways yeah like she is the one who gets the most screen time she is the one who's driving the kind of actual like plot mostly for the movie like Bourne is reacting Landy is making decisions. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that kind of Kirill is kind of this person who's fucking things up and Abbott is twisting things. Yeah. And they're all kind of like combining in such a way. But when you're watching movies where the final fight is all about like there's a disease that's gonna kill everyone in, in Australia. <laughs> um, Don't. No, but like, but like, you compare it to that, and you go like, "What is the end game of this movie?" And it's just, oh, there's one person in the CIA who covered up two murders. Like, it but from Bourne's perspective as well, like this is the guy that caused all my pain. Like, this is Treadstone embodied. And Kirill fired the bullet, and Gretkov is arguably also the puppet master who gave the orders. But like Abbott is the root cause of all of Jason's pain, and like I feel from his perspective, it's like he got the guy that is the manifestation of like what his pain is and everything. It's interesting because it's such a personal, internalized story for something which does have a big chase scene in Russia. But I think <laughs> it's what makes Bourne such an interesting counterpoint mm. to. Mission Impossible and to Bond and it's yeah. why I think both Mission Impossible 3 and Casino Royale are reacting to this movie in particular in very interesting ways in that there's still Bond and Mission Impossible movies where there's lots of big like the fucking rabbit foot in Mission Impossible 3 is <laughs> one of the biggest MacGuffins that you'll ever imagine but it does feel like the movie is based on a more personal stake rather than the world is ending the Cold War's gonna break out or you got a wife girlfriend I'm gonna find her I'm gonna hurt her I'm gonna kill you in front of her or whatever it is yeah exactly that's next week Martin Sokas Sokas as Jada like obviously it was supposed to be Mannheim obviously this dude is a better actor um, some fun deleted dialogue revealed that he tracked Bourne down in Greece and Bourne could have killed him but spared him because Marie didn't wouldn't want him to kill people oh so I, I guess that explains why he knew where this guy was because yes. it, it's kind of implied it, that he saw it in a vision which is why he knows where Berlin yeah. is and all the rest of it but I do like that he says rumour was you lost your memories like you still should have moved <laughs> it's like well yeah again that would have saved your life our section with Mission Impossible how did Tom survive with the Bourne films did you throw up and we go from a four second average shot for the Bourne identity to 1.9 seconds for this one it's very noticeable the camera's wobbling or outright shaking at almost every given moment it was really pronounced to me when I was like even this conversation between Abbott and Landy they are moving the fucking camera and this is all very intentional and the producers liked this about what Greengrass did with Bloody Sunday where the camera is an active participant and they felt that would fit this really well but 
My word, that lens is just all over the damn place in the fight scenes and the chase scenes. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a visual style that this movie does well, but it also kind of breaks action cinema. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's your there's your born legacy. Oh, like that, that, I mean, that's the whole thing. It's like this movie does it well. Like, there's obviously a reason why Paul Greengrass is hired to come back for the next movie. It's why the the, the fight scenes in this movie track really well, yeah. even if there are bits in this movie. Like, I think overall this movie looks better than Identity. Oh yeah. But I do also think the flashback scenes look kind of real bad. Yeah. It's a real odd decision because it's like it, it's even more pronounced in the shaking where it's like you're looking at a face and the camera's kind of going like we're just gonna shake it really hard so you can't <laughs> see what's going on. Um. I I think you will like looking at Ultimatum a bit more. From memory, it's a bit cleaner. It's a little bit more daylight scenes, that kind of stuff. That's what I'm looking forward to, because I do like a big action set piece that's done during daytime. This movie is very dark at points. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the iconic trailer shot for Ultimatum where like someone is jumping off a rooftop through a window, and then like Quantum of Solace did that exact shot in their trailer, and I was like, ha, that feels on purpose, and that's (laughs) why I've always had this almost this exact podcast in my head without knowing it over the years. <laughs> so finally, female agency. They fridge someone. We haven't had that yet. And yet I still think Marie, through her one movie and getting fridged, has more agency than than anyone in Mission Impossible has had I mean, so yeah, far. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the main issue, is that the most developed female character we've had so far is killed five minutes into the second movie. The only the only female character who's returned to a second movie, apart from Julia Stiles, really, yeah. is killed five minutes into this movie yeah. and is the entire emotional crux of the movie yeah. which is like the very definition of fridging yes. and, and it's so disappointing and Julia Stiles upgrades from barely having lines to being terrified as Jason Bourne threatens to kill her which isn't great it really bothers me this kind of thing in movies where like male character grabs woman aggressively by arm and like forces her somewhere and it's like it doesn't scan as inherently violent but it's like dude like don't Force your will on someone. It, it, yeah, because it's interesting because, like, in his head, Julia Stiles is like Nikki Parsons is still part of Treadstone. Yeah, he doesn't like Treadstone. Yeah, he knows this person because he might have some memories of her being his like psychotherapist or whatever. Well, he met her in the. He, he did one. meet her, but also like it. It seems he understands her importance. Yeah, as well. That she's the because she... Pam Landy's a bad bitch, in my opinion. Like, I like her sort of cutting through the sort of baked in sexism of like, you know, he's saying things like, "You talk about this like you read it in a book," and I don't think you have the shoes for it and stuff like that. That like, again, it's not massive cutting sexism, but it, it does have this like undercurrent to it. And I think she navigates these waters pretty well. And like, her and Abbott aren't presented as like superior and inferior and, and subordinate. Sorry, they are presented as like equals with. Conf- conflicting stakes. You are right that, like, she has kind of been cast in the role of, like, spoiling the boy's fun, but I don't know, maybe I'm, like, bleeding over two and three, but, because... Pam Landy will be back. I, I like her as a character, and, and she's very clearly making all of her own decisions and everything. So Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing. There's two good female characters in this movie. One of them gets fridged. <laughs> Julia Stiles gets to be like 15, 20% better than she was in the last one. And yeah. Low bar, though. <laughs> yeah, and Joan Allen kind of completely owns it, is probably yeah. at this point the best overall female character we've had so far. Yeah, probably. Because, again, she's in a position of power as well, which is always nice to see in 
movies. And then spot Michelle Monaghan if you can. But it will be much easier next week when we try to spot Michelle Monaghan because we are doing Mission Impossible 3. Eventually there will be a Bond movie in this podcast about three franchises. But for now, I am so amped to see that Philip Seymour Hoffman performance again. Uh, I I watched Charlie Wilson's War the other day purely for him and he is crushing every scene he's in and I just can't wait to see it. We we get to talk about how J.J. Abrams is really good at starting off franchises. <laughs> and before we go, I just want to go, like, so the top three movies, the new movies of oh, the UK sorry. cinema. Yeah. Top three movies of the UK cinema, the week of August 13th, 2004. So this isn't the top five, because top five is Born Supremacy opens number one, whatever. I, Robot, 13 Going on 30, Garfield. <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious. Something for for everyone. Something to think about there, everyone. The the second opening movie this weekend is Catwoman. (laughs) A movie we reviewed. The worst movie we reviewed. I'd rather watch Mission Impossible 2 again than Catwoman. Oh, absolutely. No, Catwoman is, like, irredeemable. Like, Mission Impossible at least has things that are, like, fun. Do you remember when someone had a nightclub in their their apartment? (laughs) Yes, I do remember that. So the third new opening movie this weekend. Yeah. After Born to Supremacy and Catwoman. Yeah. Opening at number 13 is Yu-Gi-Oh! The Movie Pyramid of Light. <laughs> Bye, everyone. A movie, the heart I of the cards. In, a movie I saw in cinema. The heart of the cards. And on the cards next week, Mission Impossible 3. I can't wait. Bye, everyone. Bye. Secret agent.